So this morning we are coming to the end of our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And if you remember a few weeks ago, I said there are various ways that you can count these Ten Commandments. I know you think Ten Commandments, but there are various ways you can count them. So I'm going to be using the the way that most Protestants count the Ten Commandments, and that is what I'm going to be talking about today. Roman Catholics and Lutherans split up this Tenth Commandment into two, which is kind of interesting. Of course, however you count it, however you dice it, split it up, it's talking about the same thing, and that is covetousness or coveting, that sometimes overwhelming urge we have to take possession of something that we desire. So let us turn now, then, to Exodus chapter 20 and listen for God's word to us today. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. That's where it gets split up by the Catholics. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female slave, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we pray that you will grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand as best we can your word and your world this day. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one thing you may have noticed about the commandments that uh, we've been talking about, especially the last few, is that they're all really short to the point, right? There is... Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not lie, do not steal. It doesn't mean they're simple in order to understand or to live by, but they're short, brief. And we can all sort of, in our modern sensibility, understand what they're talking about. But then we get to this commandment, and at first glance it causes a few problems for us. First of all, as I talked about last week, it assumes that the institution, the practice of slavery, is just a normal part of life. Just a normal part of life. And then if that's not hard enough to stomach, did you catch that it also assumes that wives are the property of their husbands? Right along with houses and donkeys and oxen and all the rest. So... What are we going to do with a teaching like that? Well, a crucial thing to remember about any biblical text is the context in which it was written. Ancient context, 3,000 years ago. So a task for us today is, as best we can, to sort of distinguish between the, the patriarchal slave-holding uh, worldview that the writers of the Bible had and the timeless truths that God wants to give us. God wants us to understand. God wants us to live by. So, as Christians, one way we can do this is to start with a vision of the God who we meet in Jesus Christ. The one who clearly stands for and stands with and works for and works with people for the liberation of all people from all forms of bondage, and who sees, and who treats, and who lifts up women to be on an equal standing with men. So, 
when we look at the 10th commandment through the lens of Jesus, uh, we can focus on what it's really about, and that is coveting. Now, in Hebrew, the word is chamad. The word for coveting is chamad, and it shows up a lot in the Hebrew Bible, and it gets translated in various ways into English and in other languages. In, in English, it's translated as covet or as desire or as lust or envy or greed. It reminds me of the uh, character uh, that you may remember from the 1971 film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, one Veruca Salt. If you remember, she's this incredibly spoiled, greedy brat whose dad will give her anything. And as she comes into the room uh, with the other kids in Willy Wonka's factory, she comes across this giant golden goose who lays chocolate eggs. And she sings as she just craves to have possession of this goose. She sings, I want the world. I want the whole world. I want to lock it all up in my pocket. It's my piece of chocolate. Give it to me now. I've been waiting to sing that song for like 40 years. That's like one of my favorite scenes in movie history, I gotta say. And then Veruca Salt climbs on top of the machine that or the, the measuring thing that tells her the scale, whether it's she's a good egg or a bad egg, and she becomes a, a bad egg and she goes right down a garbage chute. Now, <laughs> I am not comparing anybody here <laughs> or there online to Veruca Salt. But there are times in all of our lives when we can get too caught up in our wants. Now, the Bible tells us it all goes back Back to the beginning, back to Adam and Eve in the garden. God gives them all sorts of fruit-bearing trees, and they can eat whatever they want, but the one they desire the most is the one fruit that God tells them not to eat. So what do they do? You know the rest of the story. And forget about whether it's a, you know, historically accurate accounting of events or not. It's a story but it's true in what it has to tell us about the human condition. In the New Testament, a word that's often used for covetousness is pleonexia, from the Greek word pleon, which means more, and exo, meaning want, want more. And Jesus tells us all sorts of times and all sorts of ways to be on your guard against all types of pleonexia. But as we all know, it's hard. Because we live in a society that tells us over and over that we don't have enough. Life is a zero-sum game and we all have to keep up with the Joneses. And what's more, covetousness is contagious. It's easily spread. So marketers are constantly finding clever new ways to convince us to want more and more stuff. We all know that. In fact, the other day I was reading a really interesting story about where some of this comes from. It comes from a revolutionary innovation made by one F.W. Woolworth in 1879. How many of you remember Woolworth stores? Well, they went out of business a few years ago. Do you know the only one 
residual company that, that arose from Woolworth? Foot Locker. <laughs> so those of you who get your running shoes, that's Woolworth. But anyway, when F.W. Woolworth opened his first store in 1879 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, he had this idea to display all of his merchandise out on tables and in showcases at the front of the store. Before that time, you know, a customer, if they wanted to buy something, had to walk into a store, go to a counter, tell the clerk what they wanted, then the clerk would go back to a storage room and bring it out so that the person could purchase it. But Woolworth put all he had to sell up front so you could see it and touch it and savor it and crave it for yourself. And the rest is history. Now, to be clear, there's absolutely nothing wrong with displaying stuff in an appealing way, and there's nothing wrong with marketing in general. And, hear me clearly, there is absolutely nothing wrong with desire either. In fact, Christianity gets a really bad rap for being against all forms of desire or pleasure or just plain old fun. But the Bible is full of desire. In Proverbs, we hear, hear that uh, a desire fulfilled is sweet for the soul. And Jesus, if you remember, in all four Gospels, we hear that Jesus eagerly desires to eat the Passover meal with his disciples. And then there is a Song of Songs, or sometimes called the Song of Solomon, where desire is basically the theme of the whole book. There is passion between a man and a woman, which symbolizes the depth of our relationship with God. And, and then the, the part of the book is there's a woman who is in, in a very poetic way, uh, she's probably modeled on one of Solomon's wives, but she says this, I am my beloved's, his desire is for me. Come, beloved, let us go out to the vineyards. Let us see whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. And that's probably the least steamy part of the whole book. <laughs> so go out and read it right away. <laughs> Among other things, Scripture tells us to desire peace, liberation, justice, mercy, love. We're encouraged to desire the presence of those we love, people and God, and to relish the glories of nature. Even John Calvin the guy who inspired all those dour pilgrims that we're going to be remembering later this week, even John Calvin wrote that there is not one blade of grass or color or sound or scent in this world that God did not intend for us to enjoy. That's John Calvin. <laughs> no, the problem the 10th commandment is addressing isn't desire, in and of itself. People want what they want. The trouble arises when your craving to possess something you desire comes to possess you. That's covetousness, or what you might call disordered desire. So how do you know when a desire that you have is disordered or not? Well, Methodist minister Adam Hamilton, I like the way that he gets at 
at this. He says, first, when you desire something that would make you do something immoral to take it away from somebody else, it's disordered and it violates the Tenth Commandment. Second, when you get fixated on having something you know is probably going to hurt you or somebody else, that desire is disordered too. Third, when you put yourself in serious debt in order to get what you want, especially if it keeps you from providing and caring for your family or your community, that's a disordered desire. And finally, when an object you desire becomes a false god or an idol, that is, when a thing or an idea or a person demands your deepest attention or your ultimate loyalty apart from God, then that desire is disordered too. Now, one of the best descriptions of this ever written is in the Confessions of St. Augustine that was written in the 5th century A.D. Most of the book of the Confessions is St. Augustine expressing regret about how his life had gone before he became a Christian, before God reached out and met him. He spent most of his time feeding his desire to live, as he calls it, a happy life. But he never found real peace or joy or contentment or happiness, no matter what he had and no matter what he took from other people. And so he prays this to God. In fact, the whole book of the Confessions is in the form of a prayer to God. He prays this to God. I took too long to fall in love with you, beauty so ancient and so new. But there you always were, inside, and I was outside. And there I searched into all of those shapely things you made. My misshapen self went sliding, and I was starving and parched. Now, eventually, Augustine realizes that nothing satisfies our deepest desire, our fullest humanity as human beings, apart from being in a relationship with the God who created us to love and to be loved in return. And then, actually in the beginning of the book, in words that echo down through the ages, and you've probably heard some version of this in your life, Augustine writes, God, you made us with yourself as our goal, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. So, how can you come to grips with your disordered desires, since we all have them? Well, First, like Augustine, you can trust in and embrace the awesome extent of God's love for you and for all of creation. Love, as Jesus describes it, isn't just a feeling, it's a way of being, of doing, rather than possessing or grasping. Love of God and love of neighbor, as we've said, Steve and I throughout this series, is kind of like the positive core of all the Ten Commandments, all these you shall not do this. The, what you should do is find ways to embrace the love and mercy of God. You can't love God and worship idols. You can't love your parents and dishonor them. 
You can't love your neighbor and want to kill them or lie or steal their stuff or sleep with their spouse. It's in the self-giving love we see and receive in Christ where we find our true selves. And love like that leads to the second way to deal with disordered desires, and that is generosity. There's something about the act of giving that sets us free from just trying to get more stuff. As Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And it isn't just Jesus. Social science research shows the same thing. University of California Berkeley professor Summer Allen summarizes the findings this way. Can money buy happiness? Depends on what you spend it on. A survey of 632 Americans found that spending money on other people was associated with significantly greater happiness regardless of income. Whereas there was no association between spending money on yourself and happiness. Or consider the folks we thank this morning. The folks who have given so much of their time and their talent and their energy year after year to run the treasure sale here at church. Let's thank them again. Let's just thank you. Thank you. What is the real treasure? It's not just the stuff they were selling. It's the time they got to spend together doing something important in the spirit of generosity. Providing a way for young people and adults from here in the East Bay to give of themselves by going down and meeting a need by building houses for people who desperately needed them and still do in Mexico. Which brings us to a third way to tame our disordered desires, which is gratitude. Gratitude. Because the more thankful you are for what you have, the less you crave what you don't have. St. Paul saw this clearly too, and he wrote this in his letter to the Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. You see, your, your requests are connected to your gratitude. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So that is my prayer for all of you here and online and for myself too. That is, as we come to the end of this series on the Ten Commandments, we can stop being anxious especially about trying to win God's love or approval by just following as many do-you-shall-not laws as we possibly can, that's a recipe for failure. Instead, let's see the commandments for what they really are. An invitation to embrace God's rule or God's plan for how to live a full and faithful life. And let's examine whatever it is that keeps us from experiencing the fullness of life that God wants us to have and to share with each other. So with that, I'm going to close with a little prayer. 
my daughter Maddie came up with when she was about five years old. I'm sure I've said it here before. Uh, and we're going to be saying it again this week at the Thanksgiving table. She used to sing this as a little girl at the top of her voice. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you for the trees and stuff. <laughs> so may that little prayer remind us all to be thankful for all the trees and all the other good stuff, the blessings that God gives us each and every day. And may we be at peace in Jesus' name. Amen.